Thank you, Mike, for sharing that with us. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, if you have not preached, you do not know that the pressure on giving a good sermon increases with how good the service starts out. <laughs> so the pressure is high. The bar is, is set very high. What a wonderful time of worshiping with you all, especially this Christmas season. I want to introduce a friend, Reverend Jim Wolf and his wife Ann. Would you stand up? Would you give them a welcome? They are co-laborers in Christ. I was surprised to see them walk in today. Jim uh, pastored in southern Illinois, and I had a chance of serving with him for several years. Great man of the word. I hope that by now you're sensing that from a pastoral perspective, uh, we are excited to be walking through these Christmas texts with you. They are so rich in meaning. Two weeks ago, Pastor Thomas took you into Matthew 1, and he shared with us how Joseph did not reflect shame back to Mary or highlight her shame. Rather, he absorbed it. And Jesus took on flesh not to reflect our shame back to us, but to take it and absorb it on himself. Through faith, he takes our shame and replaces it with honor that is his. Last week, it was great to have Doug here and, and to have him take us into John 1, and I'll continue where he left off. But he talked about what it means to be long and how, uh, how wonderful it is that because of the Christmas message, you can belong to the family of God based upon the reality that he came and, and the response to his coming. Some want to deny Jesus, that he is who the Bible says he is. But some believe and receive him. And then we see the result, and it's right there in verses uh, 12 and 13 of our uh, text today in John 1. But to all who did receive him, who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor the will of man, but of God. Today we will see Jesus clothed in humanity reveals the unseen God. Christ reveals the Father's glory full of grace and truth. Would you join me in prayer? Father, it is our delight to come before you to gather in this place and to lift high the name of our Savior, Jesus, to praise his name forever. Father, we come in a spirit of praise and adoration, and we exalt you, our living God, and we give you praise. We're thankful that we can be in this place with the freedom that we have to worship you. We are truly blessed. And Lord, we thank you for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that grants us hope even in a world that can be so hopeless. Father, it is our desire to 
examine your word, and Lord, would you guide in that way your spirit move mightily and work in our hearts and lives and speak through me. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters at East Campus today, and Lord, would you bless the ministry there. Lord, we would pray for those gospel preaching and teaching and Bible proclaiming churches around the world today, that your name and your truth would be lifted high and people would be brought from darkness into glorious light. Father, we thank you and we praise you. And we commit this time to you that we would see the glory of Christ more clearly, full of grace and truth. In Jesus' name, amen. I suspect that the holiday season can be difficult for many of you. A reminder, uh, perhaps, of, of who's not present. Maybe it's a grandparent or a parent, a child who's away in the military or maybe has passed. Maybe you've been widowed. For you, Christmas can be a painful reminder of that. For others, it's a time of great anticipation because you'll get to enjoy the presence of someone special. As I was driving the other day, I uh, listened to the radio and there was a question presented, if you could spend Christmas with anyone, just anyone, who would it be? Who would you want to dwell with, to have that time with? Today we're going to pick up where Pastor Doug left off last week. Again, in, in, first, or in, in the first chapter of John here, we see those 18 verses that, that it starts out with that were just read uh, by Mike for us. They serve as a prologue for John's gospel. He provides us with a large and essential dose of doctrine. It's as though John is saying, listen, before I give you the account of Jesus, before I give you uh, the, the narrative of his life and ministry, let me first clarify who he is. Sort of saying, you won't fully grasp the magnitude of this if you miss out on who it is we're talking about. You need to know. I join John in stressing the significance of this. Salvation is only found in a proper understanding of who Jesus is. These doctrines are essential to understanding the gospel and its significance. These truths are both incredibly simple and astoundingly complex. By that I mean a, a child could say it and theologians will argue over it. They'll get entangled in it. As a pastor, I've gone to other ordination councils of other pastors, and I've watched young pastors maybe uh, get their wording a little bit sideways when it comes to this particular subject. And the others on the council will then become like hungry coyotes <laughs> to make sure he's not askew on this somewhere. My brother Jim laughs as I tell that because he's seen it himself. Not him. He did it perfectly. It's clear, yet mysterious. You see, this prologue tells us, first of all, that Jesus is eternal. We hear that again from the words of Jesus recorded in Revelation 22. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the first and the last, the beginning and the end. 
What did we see at the beginning of this chapter? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. The constraints of time have no bearing on him, so we need to know that first of all. Second, we notice that he's the creator. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. Third, he's the life and light of men. Light that darkness cannot overcome, amen. The giver and sustainer of life. We also see that he's the only way to become a child of God. Yes, we are the creations of God, but we become his children by faith in Jesus. Fifth, he is the one who reveals the Father. These doctrines help us clarify all the narrative that John will proceed to go through. Remember, the purpose of John's gospel was, that, was to bring people to belief. The very thesis of, of John in, in John 20, verse 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If, he's, if that's his emphasis, he's saying, you've got to understand who he is. And that's what we're seeing in this prologue. In our text this morning, we will see our Christ who came to dwell, who gives grace, and who displays the Father. Look with me at those verses again, 14 and 15. John 1, 14 and 15. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Here it starts out, and the word. And this is the first time we see the word again since verse 1. And it's the last time we're going to see it in the book. But remember verse 1, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John wants us to understand that the Word, the Greek term logos, logos, transcends time, exists without beginning or end. The divine mind and, and nature and even essence of God, He is Word God. So John tells us here in verse 14 that Jesus became flesh. The word God becomes word man. Still divine, still deity. The Greek word translated to flesh refers to more than flesh. It's, it's bone, blood, and soul. This was a stunning thing to be saying to John's original audience Flesh was a bold word for the sophisticated Greek culture that, were, that was into Gnostic thought. They thought nothing of the flesh. Only things that were good were, and pure were of the spirit realm. So this was in, incredibly radical what he was saying. John doesn't say he became man. He doesn't say he became body. He says the word became flesh. Chuck Swindoll once said it, God con carne. 
God is meat. And as crass as that may sound, John wants his readers to understand that he took on real flesh like yours and and like mine. Now, I'm going to make an assumption here this morning that, that, that all of you can observe that I stand before you in the flesh. I'm not an illusion. I'm not a hologram. I can be seen and heard and touched. Now, some of you may wish it was somebody else up here, but that's beside the point. It, it, is who, 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 it is me who stands before you. But this is what John is referring to. And look ahead with me. Let's jump to uh, the first epistle of John, John 1, chapter 1, and, and look at what he would write later. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you may have, you too may have the fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. What's he saying? We saw. We we heard. We touched, and guess what? We proclaim that to you, And and it gives us great joy to proclaim that to you so that you can know it as well. Church, we must do our best to grasp the depth of what is being communicated here. Flesh is by nature impermanent. We are all smart enough to know that this earthly tent in which we live does not last forever. No offense, but some of you are decades into your 20s. (laughs) I mean, I can't be in my early 30s for the rest of my life. Flesh is vulnerable. It's corruptible. The word lagos is eternal. Yet only as God himself could do, The word doesn't stop or cease being divine or being deity. The word is God and man. We see words in this section, made, came, and became, and they're all interlinked. But what we're seeing is, just as we saw the word was God in verse 1, here we see the word became flesh. Adolf Schlatter put it this way, what emerged out of the word was flesh. Barth puts it this way, no change takes place, no transubstantiation, no replacing of the word's mode, no development development of a mixture of both, but a full union in which nothing is taken from the divine and nothing added to the creaturely. Amazing. Please know we could discuss this in a classroom for weeks, but I must move on. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Christ came to dwell. 
Christ takes on flesh to dwell among mankind, and there's an additional purpose. The ultimate significance of him taking on flesh was absolutely displayed in the gospel truth of the cross, sacrifice. But we must not miss that word dwelt. It's biblically significant and powerful. It's important. We can go all the way back to the the creation account, the original sin, the fall, and that broken relationship. And then John's reference here should draw our minds back to the Israelites in the wilderness after the exodus from Egypt. Remember the whole tabernacle? Where God's Shekinah glory would take up residence. And later in the temple, where God was dwelling or tabernacling, if you will, amidst his people. But catch this. What John speaks of here is greater. John is both alluding to the past and explaining how much greater this new dwelling is. God had not dwelt among his people like this or revealed himself like this. This was greater. Back then, his presence was, in in some respects, limited, sometimes just in in a mystical sense, if you will, but present. But God could depart with his tabernacle or depart with the destruction of the temple. But John says, we have seen his glory... Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Certainly, John is alluding back once again. God's people desire to see and to know Him, yet His glory is too much for them. We read of theophanies, supernatural manifestations of God. Theophany, two Greek words, God and appearances. Jacob's wrestling match with God the burning bush and Moses, the pillar of cloud and fire, the one who joins Shadrach and company in the furnace, so on. These were certainly displays of God's glory. But now think of Moses insisting that God reveal his glory. If you remember, he he first is in a situation where he declares that, that he will not lead the people unless God will be with them. Notice his response. Let's jump over to Exodus for a minute. Exodus 33, verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord Yahweh. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. What happens here? Moses gets a veiled or limited portion of God's glory. But what's John declaring here? The eternal pre-existent Word of God becomes flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son of the, from the Father, 
full of grace and truth. What an amazing phrase. We have seen His glory. The only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We're going to come back to that. John doesn't want us to be unaware or unsure of whom he writes. He goes on to clarify it there in verse 15. John bore witness about him, and he cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John the Apostle is now referencing John the Baptizer, who makes an amazing statement. He says, Jesus ranks higher. He comes after me, but he was before me. He was physically older than Jesus, but Jesus preexisted him. John the baptizer knew Jesus was the one. He said of Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he also said of him, he must increase and I must decrease. John knew his place. Imagine with me that you buy tickets to some show. You want to go see some artist, some musician. And when you get there, an MC comes out and it's their job to introduce this, this artist. But the MC refuses to stop talking and, and keeps the attention on him or herself and just keeps going and going and will not introduce the artist. You see, John knew his place. He was the one to introduce Jesus, the anticipated one. He was a witness, a voice, one who came to bear witness about Christ. Got to keep moving. Christ gives grace. Look at verses 16 and 17. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For from the law was given through Moses grace. Uh, through Mo Moses grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In verse 14 he had described him as full of grace and truth. Understand, you cannot separate truth from grace. They are linked in his very nature. Yes, Jesus is full of grace, and thank you, Lord, that he is. But he's truth. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way. I am the what, church? Say it louder. I'm the way. I am the truth. I'm the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. The one and only way to eternal life with the Father. So many in our culture, in our day and age, are greatly deceived. They do not believe this. And they get upset when they hear a definitive statement like this. They don't like that. They say it's exclusive. Truth in its very nature is exclusive. And it's tragic when people refuse to accept it or are so blinded by it. The enemy is the father of lies. But Jesus is not just the way. He is the truth. And him is found life. And that life is abundant, John 10. And that life is eternal. Amen? It is more than reasonable to suggest that this also alludes back to Moses' interaction with God. A little further ahead, and look at, look at me quickly at Exodus 34, verses 5 and 6. 
The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he continues. It's the Lord's proclamation about himself. A God merciful and gracious. Merciful, withholding deserved punishment. A gracious, granting unmerited favor. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So John is likely drawing a parallel here between the experience Moses had with God's glory and the glory of God incarnate, Jesus Christ. Yes, this is Jesus, the God-man. And notice what he says, from his fullness we have received grace upon grace, or grace in the place of grace. You ever receive something from someone and and everything in you says, uh, they really can't afford that? Or they shouldn't be giving me that? Or please don't, I know you need this. Some years ago, I was on a mission trip in Costa Rica. And out of this host church from from which we ministered, I, I stayed in the home of this Costa Rican family, a wonderful family. And I, I, I don't know if you'd noticed, I'm, I'm a little bit taller than most Costa Ricans. They took one look at me and went, grande! Anyway, uh, <laughs> and they had moved their little daughter out of her bedroom into theirs and, and put me in, in her bedroom with a bed about this long. Uh, <laughs> So I kind of slept diagonally across it or whatever and hoped it wouldn't break. And it was a little bit awkward because the walls between the rooms were not very high. So the shower wall went to about here and then there was their living room. So it was kind of an intimate experience when I showered. Um, Hey. (laughs) But you know, when I I went to leave, uh, the mother of the household had gone to this market and bought all kinds of touristy Costa Rica gifts for me. They're still in my office to this day. And when she gave them to me, everything in me said, no, don't, don't. Save, save your money, you need it. Listen. He gives us grace from his fullness. His fullness. The supply is not limited. John declares, we have received grace upon grace. And by the way, this this we is not not just limited to John and company. It's to all true believers in Christ. We have received grace upon grace or grace in the place of grace. Interpretively, this could mean one of two things. Option one, an accumulation of grace. You're adding grace and it's just building up. The other option is replacing grace with a different grace. Edward Klink, a friend of mine, he used to be a professor of New Testament in Biola. Biola is now a pastor in northern Illinois. He makes a compelling case for the second interpretation being one that's likely more accurate. Among other arguments, he states that in all Greek literature, there's no parallel use of option one of this accumulation without adding plurals and such as that. If he's right, I I like to think of it as, imagine sitting down in a mountain stream 
and leaning yourself back against a large boulder and letting that water just rush over you. It keeps coming and keeps coming. There's no shortage of it. It's different water, but it's, it's still coming. It's flowing and flowing and flowing. And, and that's kind of how I see that here. Grace upon grace. Do you ever ask yourself why the Lord is so good to you? Maybe earlier when Will led us in that beautiful time of confession, you're thinking, why, Lord? I don't deserve this. Look at verse 17 because it seems to further support Clink's theory. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Clink put it this way. The larger context of the prologue makes certain that verse 17 ought not be classified as synonymous or antithetical parallelism, but as synthetic or, or progressive parallelism. The old covenant is as much grace as the new, but it is in the new covenant that grace is given its ultimate and final expression. The progression of the pro- prologue has moved from a God who has given to his people to a God who has come to his people. Isn't that beautiful? And that's the magnificent truth that we celebrate this Christmas. Finally, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Christ displays the Father. He reveals him. He, he shows who he is. This is the final proclamation in John's prologue here. No one has ever seen God, the only God. Moses got a, a post-glory or limited glory look or an afterglow, if you will, of God's glory. There may have been glimpses of it, but they were toned down or veiled or, or just samples, a taste, a glimpse of his glory. Remember what we read in Exodus 33, and no one can see my glory and live. And here John gets to announce, Jesus, God in flesh, we have seen him, and he has made God known to us. The invisible is visible. Isn't that beautiful? It's beautiful. The word became flesh. Lynn Brooks shared some things with me. I want to pass them on to you. They're beautiful. I can think of nothing more appropriate at this time of year to meditate on. Sam Storms wrote this, whatever else Christmas may mean to you, it is first and fundamentally about the doctrine of the incarnation of the word. The incarnation means two distinct natures, divine and human, are united in one person, Jesus. 
He's not two people, God and man. He is one person, the God-man. Jesus is not schizophrenic. When the Word became flesh, He did not cease to be the Word. The Word veiled, hid, or voluntarily restricted the use of certain divine powers and prerogatives. But God cannot cease to be God. In other words, when the Word became flesh, it was not the death of His deity. Can I ask you to just let your minds soak in this thought? Take a deep breath, if you will. And don't just dismiss it as as theological detail or speculation even. Because this is the truth on which our eternal destiny hangs suspended. This is a truth the beauty and majesty of which will captivate your attention and cause sin to sink in your estimation. Wherein lies the power to turn from iniquity and to say no to sin? It lies in the power and irresistible appeal of an uncreated God who would dare become man. The word became flesh. God became human. The invisible became visible. The untouchable touchable. Eternal life experienced temporal death. The transcendent one descended and drew near. The unlimited became limited. The infinite became finite. The immutable became mutable. The unbreakable became fragile. Spirit became matter. Eternity entered into time. The independent became dependent. The Almighty became weak. The loved became the hated. The exalted was humbled. Glory was subjected to shame. Fame turned into obscurity. From inexpressible joy to tears of unimaginable grief. From a throne to a cross. From ruler to being ruled. From power to weakness. Finally, Max Lucado put it this way. The omnipotent in one instant made himself breakable. He who had been spirit became pierceable. 
He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. He who sustains the world with a word chose to be dependent on the nourishment of a young girl. God as a fetus. Holiness sleeping in a womb. The creator of life being created. God was given eyebrows, elbows, two kidneys, and a spleen. He stretched against the walls and floated in the amniotic fluids of his mother. The Word became flesh. Amazing. And he did it to redeem us and grant us grace upon grace. I don't know who your heart longs to dwell with this Christmas, but can you hear me when I say we have a Savior who went to the greatest lengths possible in order to dwell with you. I hope that means everything to you.